large extent. My name is Kevin Dunn. Uh, for those of you who are new, I think there are a few new faces here in this building. You are in the Institute of World Politics. We are a graduate school of statecraft and national security. And our curriculum focuses on the study and practice of the full spectrum of national power. If you have any further questions about what we do here, uh, you can point those questions in my direction. I'd most happily assist you. But we're here today, of course, to um, listen to our uh, speaker and uh, alumnus of the Institute of World Politics, Mr. Jeffrey Soroka. And he will pre be presenting a lecture on the topic of uh, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. The title of the lecture today is Which Orthodox Church in Ukraine? Kirill and Filaret in the Donbass. And so let me give you a brief introduction of our speaker today, and I'll see the floor to him. Mr. Soroka is a graduate student at the Institute of World Politics. Um, so you're, you're a current student, is that correct? Right. I'm sorry, apologies. Uh, studying international affairs, and he obtained his Bachelor of Arts in Government from Patrick Henry College in 2015. I know you have spoken here on several occasions before. We want to thank you for coming out again. And without further ado, let us please give him a warm welcome round of applause. Thank you. Thank you for coming. As he said, the topic of the lecture is which Orthodox Church in Ukraine, Kirill and Filaret in the Donbass. So we will start with a brief overview of the Orthodox Church itself, starting with just a very quick overview of the religious makeup of Ukraine. According to recent statistics, you can see Christian Orthodox makes up the majority. You have um, you have Roman or you have Roman Catholic and Protestant and other types of unaffiliated Christians making up another large majority, but the Orthodox Church itself, of uh, various iterations, makes up the vast majority. This is going to be a very brief history. Obviously, Orthodoxy and Eastern Orthodoxy are much larger than just Ukraine and even larger than just Russia, so this is by no means comprehensive, just touching on some of the most relevant points for today's discussion. And of course, the discussion today is going to focus primarily on Ukraine, with a little bit on Russia and Eastern Europe in general. The region was known as Ruthenia, and initially it was pagan as much of the region was. The aristocracy began to convert after Eastern Orthodoxy began to spread in the region around 867 AD. The conversion of the aristocracy was primarily political in nature. It was a way of consolidating power. Um, Latin Christendom and paganism maintained some influence in the region, but they, they were by no means dominant. Kiev at that point was not elevated to the position of a patriarchate um, back, in, back in the first millennium. Um, and when when Isidore of Kiev became metropolitan, he, it, he, was, he was called the metropolitan because he wasn't yet a patriarch. At one point in, uh, let's see. So later in the 1400s, there was some push to consolidate with Rome and some members of the Eastern Orthodox Church were in favor of this consolidation and 
Isidore was actually a supporter of that consolidation, and he did have some others who supported that idea. However, when he returned and started speaking with leaders, and especially um, the aristocracy in the region, some of them were supportive, but when he spoke with the Grand Prince in Moscow, uh, the Grand Prince was not supportive. He actually had Isidore imprisoned and eventually expelled. Isidore made it back to Rome and became a bishop in the Roman Church. However, at that point, there was no metropolitan. The Grand Prince appointed Ryazan as the metropolitan. Later on, when the Grand Prince took the title of Tsar, he gave the title of Patriarch to Ryazan. However, this title wasn't officially recognized by Constantinople. It was only later through some through some political deals that that position officially became a patriarchate. <clears throat> now, when the after the Bolshevik Revolution, when the communists were in control of Russia, the obviously many of them were not religious, were not in favor of the Russian Orthodox Church. However, to a certain extent, some of the clergy were involved with the revolutionaries, and so it was. Um, it was used as an arm of state influence. There were independent religious communities that still continued to exist, but these were very decentralized. Some of them continued to recognize there, there was a series of patriarchs who had been appointed after Isidore, but they, they weren't officially recognized. They still weren't officially recognized by Constantinople, and so these independent communities didn't have regular communication with those patriarchs either. They, they continued to recognize them, but they didn't really have a whole lot of influence or ability to coordinate. During the, it's, it's interesting to note that during the German invasion, there were a lot of devout Russian Orthodox believers who did fight with the Red Army. Despite some of the repressions that they had experienced at the hands of the Soviets, they were still very willing to support the idea of a unified Russia against the Germans. And that did end up bringing a little bit of relief in some of the repressions, but it, it didn't by any means bring full religious freedom. And then what we're really getting into here is after the Soviet Union fell, you did have several of these communities reassert their independence. Um, you saw the Ukrainian Autocephalus Church come into being again, you saw kind of come out of the shadows, it, it had existed underground. You saw the Greek Orthodox Church reassert itself. And so these, these religious communities have been involved in Ukraine since then, but again, somewhat disorganized, somewhat decentralized. So obviously this brings up the question of why does this matter? I'm gonna make it clear, I'm not arguing that the conflict in Donbass is a religious conflict, it's not. However, religion does motivate people's actions. It motivates both individual actions and actions at the state level. So it is important to recognize how deeply rooted some of those religious beliefs are and that will, that will allow us to better understand some of those actions. So, the primary reason why I got interested in this topic was that back in 2015, Patriarch Carol, he's the Patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, declared that godlessness is becoming the state ideology of Ukraine. This obviously upset a lot of both Ukrainian Orthodox believers and just Ukrainians in general. 
and it's led to some other decisions on the part of the Russian Orthodox Church. It's led to, obviously, some mixed reactions from the Ukrainians. Now, Ukraine is not as religious as it perhaps was in the past. However, it still religion still has a very important influence in the country. It's also important to note that Ukraine actually contains a larger number of Russian Orthodox churches than Russia itself. So since Kirill's statement, you have actually seen some Russian Orthodox believers and even Ukrainian Orthodox Moscow Patriarchate parishes switch their allegiance. Some people leaving their church and going to a Kiev Patriarch Church or even whole parishes saying that they were now under the Kiev Patriarchate instead. This has led to some legal battles, obviously, over church property. We've seen something similar with, say, the Episcopal Church here in the U.S. Now, with some of these churches switching, obviously there have been claims that some of these leaders were coerced by the government in Kiev. Of course, many of the, the, the Ukrainian Orthodox leaders who switched are claiming that this was their decision and this was a decision by their congregations. So there's this individual that I ha that I mentioned here at the bottom, Sergei Chapman. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was he occupied a fairly high editorial position within the journal of the Moscow Patriarchate and he was removed from that position after he criticized some of Kirill's actions and statements. And he's actually been one of the people who has talked a lot about many of these Ukrainian Orthodox churches switching their allegiance. And this causes concern, obviously, for Kirill, because if even the majority, you, you wouldn't need all of them, but if even, even a large majority of those churches declared allegiance to the Kiev Patriarchate instead, it would, it would severely limit Kirill's influence in Eastern Ukraine and possibly even lead to Russian Orthodox congregations in, say, Romania and other nations looking at switching their allegiance as well. So I'm going to go over real quick. There's a concept within Eastern Orthodoxy known as symphonia. In a Western mindset, we, especially in the U.S., we have the concept of separation of church and state. We see them as two separate authorities that sometimes act in, act in conjunction, but that we believe those authorities should be separate, and we see a lot of legal battles. It's not that way in Ukrainian Orthodoxy, and it can sometimes come across as state-controlled religion or vice versa, um, um, the state being controlled by the religion. However, this, this comes from, even back in its ancient history, the concept of Caesaropapism, the idea of the state authority being able to appoint bishops and other local religious leaders, and that was a fight that the Roman North or the Roman Catholic Church went through as well. But it it came to a very different conclusion in Eastern Orthodoxy. So the reason why this is important is because it it may help to explain some of Kirill's statements. He's the statement that he made about um, the about godlessness becoming the state ideology of Ukraine. That mean. That isn't necessarily something that was directed by the government in Moscow, although the, the church and the government um, have a very close relationship. It may come across to us in the West as something that he was told to do, but more than likely it is, it is something that 
it was his decision as a way of supporting what he saw as his allies in the government in Moscow, and that's an important distinction. Now, here's um, just some current actions that he has taken. He's made several overtures to the Pope. The issue of Latin and Eastern, Eastern Christianity reuniting is something that has been a feature of religious discussions for millennia, obviously. So he's made these overtures, and there was even, a, back in 2016, he and Pope Francis met, and they released a joint statement. Now, while Kirill may be a prominent leader in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and while the Patriarch of Constantinople is not the equivalent of the Pope in Eastern Orthodoxy, it's important to recognize that this joint statement that they released, it does bear some influence. However, it is not necessarily something that overrides doctrine for other Eastern Orthodox churches. But there's some important language in the statement that uh, is, it's good to pay attention to. So several of the statements are something we would agree with, something fairly innocuous about we deplore the hostility in Ukraine that has already caused many victims. This is an English translation that, that came from the Vatican radio. However, there are some other statements, especially the two last ones that I have on here about um, saying that it can't be accepted that uh, disloyal means be used to incite believers to pass from one church to another. And then he has the other statement about he, he decries what he calls uniatism, understood as the union of one community to the other, separating it from its church. This is talking about the various congregations in, in both eastern Ukraine and more central Ukraine that have switched their allegiances. And so getting a statement like that in conjunction with the Pope obviously carries a lot of weight in the international community. So he's also appealed to the UN in trying to um, get some criticism, some international criticism of those actions, and he's also called out two bills that recently appeared before the Ukrainian parliament. This, this bill 4155, I've seen it listed both as 4155 and 4551, just in case anybody was interested in looking up any more information on it. So both of these dealt with the relationship between the Ukrainian government and the Eastern Orthodox congregations. They, they see some of the Eastern Orthodox leadership, especially leaders within the Moscow Patriarchate, as a potential insider threat of a kind. And so 4155 was essentially trying to give the Ukrainian government authority over the religious leaders so that if they did see a particular religious leader as some kind of a threat, they might have authority to remove or replace him. And then 4128 dealt with that idea of if a church switches allegiance, do they get to take their church property, their building, their land, their equipment with them? Based on what I was able to find, I believe these bills did pass. The language that that um, Kirill and other Moscow Patriarchate leaders used when discussing it um, indicates that, that these bills did pass. So Patriarch Filaret, he is the Patriarch of the Kiev Patriarchate, and um, this title Patriarch, though, is not officially recognized by Constantinople. So like I said, 
the Eastern Orthodox Church is not as centralized as the Roman Catholic Church. So it's not that it's not that he it's not that he has to have the recognition of Constantinople in order to take the title Patriarchate, but it does carry more authority if he would get recognition. And so there have been efforts on the part of the Kiev Patriarchate in order to get that official recognition, and those efforts have been resisted by Moscow Patriarchate and Russian Orthodox leaders. And so involving the the actual situation in eastern Ukraine and the the protests in Kiev, he and several other priests they, they were involved there, they did help minister. That's brought about some criticism obviously from the, the Russian Orthodox leadership. And also obviously he's been vocal about his desire to see them united under the Kiev Patriarchate. So Obviously, this is a sensitive issue, especially in the West, that idea of the, the ties between political authority and religious authority is something that's caused a lot of tension, and it, it causes even more tension in this area. And so I understand sometimes, especially Western political leaders, aren't comfortable touching on issues of religion. However, we do need to recognize that this is a part of the con conflict there. There might not... There, there might not be a whole lot for the political leadership in this country or in the UN to do. However, the religious leadership, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, could be more vocal in their support of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Ukrainian Orthodox Church's bid to get recognition from Constantinople. That that act of just being more vocal in support it obviously doesn't carry any legal weight with the church, but it it could put more pressure on them to seriously consider this application. And as the conflict continues, international observers should obviously continue to monitor the issue in Ukraine. The, the two bills that were brought before the Ukrainian parliament recently aren't the only two that are going to be considered in the near future. And there, with the conflict going on, there is a pressure to pass more bills that are going to curtail the influence that the Russian Orthodox Church might have over the Ukrainians. Some of those may very well be justified, but there is going to be pressure to push the envelope further and further. And so international observation would go a long way towards hopefully keeping that from, from passing into open religious oppression. <laughs>